from Koenigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan here, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode is Abigail Knapp, a journalist and editor who has written extensively on food and food culture. She worked for the Condé Nast conglomerate at La Cucina Italia, as well as other major publications. And, uh, very lucky for us, she is adding the Ojai Quarterly to her portfolio. She is also working on a story about Jill and Joe Biden being the very first Red Sauce family to inhabit the White House. Please enjoy our conversation. Hey, Abigail, thanks for joining me. Hey, how's it going? Good. This is uh, exciting because you're a food enthusiast and a fellow journalist, and you put those two together and you can really have a lot of fun. This is true. There's a lot of places you can go. Yeah, and, uh, you know, my my thinking is if you want to understand, like, a different culture, the, the heuristic or the shortcut is the food absolutely yeah yeah so um i was gonna bring you on here to just talk about your trip to switzerland got canceled which seemed very exciting but um now that means that you'll have more time to work on a story for the ohio quarterly absolutely and let's face it the weather is better here so that's yeah it is true it we could use a little rain but maybe this week, we're expected to get some precipitation. Hopefully All right. will come through. That'll, be a, that'll make a big difference. Yeah. That's always fun to see, too. So where, where tell, tell me about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up and what uh, was your, you know, early experiences? And Sure. Uh, let's see. I started off. Well, first, are you going to take out these us or can I, should I try to be conscious of them? The us? Mm-hmm. And when I start talking. I think you'll be fine. Okay. It's just like a placeholder. I do it all the time myself. Okay, perfect. You had asked me why food writing and what got me interested in that. And I was thinking about my early years, which were in um, the Jersey Shore. Uh, We lived in Which exit? That's a really good question. Off the garden. That's all I know about the... uh, uh, Jersey Turnpike. Yeah. People don't ask what te- where are you from. They ask which exit. Yeah, that's true. This is off the Garden State Parkway. It's a, a town called Spring Lake, and supposedly our family was the first Italian American to arrive on its shores. Um, it's a predominantly Irish Irish American town, and so uh, growing up. I really looked forward to our family dinners. It was kind of a reset for our family, which like many families had a lot of interesting dynamics. Uh, but on a routine basis, Fridays, we would have escarole and bean soup with white fish. Uh, and on, you know, Sundays we had the traditional spaghetti meatball. Yeah. The big pork, red sausage, sauce extravaganza mm-hmm, with a kid's table and, you know, linens and everything. And then, when I was four years old, we moved to rural Washington State, and it was the first time that I couldn't find mozzarella. There was no provolone. 
There were no uh, Italian bread loaves. Gabagool, which we didn't really do much of, but yeah, you get a sense for it. Um, That's more boot heel of Italy type of food, I think. Yeah, so I was uh, kind of immediately struck by seeing differences when it came to the table. Um, Yeah. And also, you know, school lunches, a lot of kind of immigrant kids will talk about, you know, reactions to food at the table. And this was a pretty... At that time, more insular communities. So I'd have like, you know, olive oil stains on my, uh, like my lunch bag and, and garlic and it was freaking everyone out. So yeah, it was a, kind of a starting point. And my mother had a catering business, uh, which was a lot of fun and really intense. And she had a kitchen in our garage. So I'd go out there and it was a very intense production line with yeah, usually to get several it ready people. for an event, I'll bet. An event, yeah. And kind of like Ojai, I mean, these events were literally, you'd walk out into a meadow in the middle of nothing. You'd have to drive 45 minutes and there'd just be a propane tank and uh, maybe a well. And then you kind of went from there. So had to build a whole community around that yeah. for, for 12 hours or whatever. Oh, yeah. I, I'd say the, the cooking was usually three days. Um, oh. And then the, you know, event setup would be two and then the takedown. So you were day. working with your mom the whole like from earliest memories, like she's putting you into. Uh, uh, that's a good question. My sister was, I asked too many questions. So I was usually not in the kitchen. You were relegated. Uh-huh. But then later during um, college, I came back and yeah, I began running kind of the front of house for her and being more the people person. So she could kind of focus on the food and execution. Yeah. What so what love. did you, it just seemed like you didn't get very far away from from that <laughs> in your career. Uh-huh. There must have been some major detours, though. Where did you go to college? There were some major detours. I went to Bard College, also oh, known yeah, as... Oh, yeah, State New York. Yeah, yeah. I think it, we got the best reputation the for dinner party school. Really? Um, yeah, we used to crash... Uh, the Astor Estate, they had some awesome carriage houses that were really beautiful and kind of falling apart. And friends used to get like the leftover vegetables from the surrounding farms and we would have like big Shabbat dinners. And and so, yeah, the school lived up to its name in that sense. Nice. Um, well, I hear a lot about Bard. Mm-hmm. I have a couple friends of mine went there. Yeah. Wasn't uh, one of the Steely Dan guys from there? He went there. Uh, Chevy Chase. Not Walter Becker, the other one. Yeah. I don't remember his name. Beastie oh. Boys. Which Oh, really? Adam and Mike D. And yeah. Um, who last, else? Last exit to uh, Oh Singing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Hannah Arendt is buried there. Oh, really? Did she teach there? I don't, She might have, or she was like a visiting scholar. I don't I know. See, She's probably one of the most quoted women in the world mm-hmm. at all totalitarianism. And yeah, there's an excellent book I'm reading now called The Free World by Louis Menand. History yeah. of Great. the post-war period and how the ideological lines shaped up. and But just the character sketches she had or that sure. he has in there about, about Hannah. And she never renounced Heidegger. Huh. You know, he he was a, her uh-huh. teacher slash lover I and a, con, a committed Nazi. He never Cause... renounced fascism. Right. And she 
you know, kept up a lifelong correspondence with him. Interesting. She was on a completely opposite end of the spectrum. That would be a great class. They should what, have that, that, that class. Teach together or just some, some uh, uh, exploration Bard. of yeah, that relationship. exploration of their romance and like exploration of ideas. I took a food and wine, no, it was called bread and wine class and it was a French rural history class and it was super oh, interesting. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Yeah. It was deceptively interesting. We were learning about crazy medieval life uh, you know, farmers jumping off of barns, getting high on fermented rye bre- bread by oh, yeah, accident. Oh, yeah, the uh, ergot rye fungus would uh-huh. call, cause these madnesses. They yeah. had an outbreak of that in, like, some rural village in France in, like, the 1960s. Wow, and yeah. And it turned out that it was the CIA was experimenting with, I don't know why they chose this particular village, but it was actually LSD, not ergot rye fungus. Oh, jeez. But they... Blamed it on arrogant rye fungus because it is a precursor yeah. to LSD. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a quite a shady operation. That's another book, probably the CIA and food and. Well, yeah, because Julia Child's husband was a spy, right? And just like reflecting on the summer, I was in Naples for a while, and it's I feel like one of the few cities I've been to where there's still mm, a few sprinkled positive memories of the American involvement during World War II with some critical takes too. But just thinking about a a country coming into another country with cigarettes and chocolate, that is a pretty nice package if you've been deprived of simple pleasures for a while. I don't know who came up with that one. There's But it was smart. Yeah. It's like guns and butter, second generation. Yeah. And nylons, too, were big trade items. Yeah, there were a lot of needed things, for sure. Yeah. It was interesting in Naples how quickly the Camorra got back in charge because the Mm. fascists had kept them, you know, they were the gangsters, the fascists. Yeah. The the old school families, you know, the La Costa Nosa, this thing of ours, they were kept pretty mercilessly repressed through the 20s and 30s and then yep. sprang right back up again right after World War II. My understanding yeah. is the Americans helped them do that. Because they were partisans. They were helping fight the fascists, yeah. Yeah, complicated. It is a very complicated mm-hmm. world. <laughs> so central Washington to Hudson River Valley, that's like a cultural chasm. Did they you have feel apples any, in uh, common. They, oh my God, apples! Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, apple well, cider donuts and apples. Yeah, we had a lot of apple trees. My dad was very proud of his horticulture, and we had one tree with seven different kinds of apples on it that from all of his amazing. grafts. Amazing! Wow, we had some very, very hard to grow apples. The Macowan was the, my favorite, which is the Macintosh, huh. Cortland, and Oneida hybrid. Wow, so good! Oh my God, that is incredible. Well, I don't remember. Those details. Um, but your family wasn't in farming at all in, in central Washington? because Not at all. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, I guess in a way my mom would commission plants to be grown. Things like Italian parsley were hard to find in grocery stores. And so she would work with local farmers. And then there was often a community dinner, harvest dinner at the end of the fall period. And she many times um, kind of created the menu 
depending on what came in. And that was a really oh, fun yeah. thing. That would be fun. That's very yeah. much farm to table, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without, I don't know if they, did they call it that? She was a big slow food, um, that Italian Gentleman back in the late 80s. That he, yeah. He stuck. Really, I can't remember his name now, um, but it was quite a movement. It was like Mario. What Smart. is his name? Not Pellegrini. It was in response to putting the first McDonald's in Milan, I believe. Yeah. And a lot of those tenants, because she spent time also working in uh, Oregon and Northern California. So a lot of that zero kilometer reduced food waste, eat seasonally locally, that was also part of her deal. And a lot of people in our tiny weird community came there during Y2K. So there was a real um, push for sustainability in the sense of like, if everything goes to shit, our Doomsday valley will be preppers. Fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So having a sustainable local mm-hmm. farm system would be very exactly. important. Yeah. yeah. And also anxieties around um, land conservation, uh, how much of that land should be conserved versus, you know, for agriculture or housing. I'm sure there are similar debates happening here that I'm not yeah. informed of. There's circular debates though. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be any easy solutions. Yeah. But we do have, have the store ordinance of save our agricultural resources, which has been hmm. re- passed 25 years ago and then just recently mm-hmm. renewed, hmm. which pro- keeps the agricultural land in production, makes it harder to develop. That's... And it's been very helpful because a lot of farmers don't, you know, they they can't get to the second and third generations. It just loses its appeal. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of farm families in Ohio that are fourth, fifth, sixth generations. That's impressive. But lately, water prices, everything. Well, we had a big story in this latest right. issue of the quarterly. Great story. Yeah. yeah. Very well researched. Yeah. So what... Uh, Speaking of research, what was it that brought you to journalism in the first place? And then the second part of that would be how you got into food journalism. How did you put those two together? What was the, what are some, or just describe that journey for me if you can. Sure. I wanted to be a journalist since I read some of the early American history. I was really interested in um, Benjamin Franklin. And I loved learning about all of the gnome de plumes he had for kind of instigating chatter in his small communities around. Yeah, Constance the of the do day. Good. Exactly. Yeah, I found there was a bunch of funny names he uh-huh. used, and he seemed to live by his curiosity and live by his curiosity. That's well, very well put. Yeah, and also by rumor and all those other kind of funny things. Uh, and I also was inspired by the public systems that he set up, supposedly. Um, like the post office. Yeah, post office. He had some libraries, I believe, he contributed to. And then also he was like a man of pleasure, which I thought was yeah, great a, for an American at the time. Streak. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that, reading his autobiography, I think I was like nine or something, that kind of got me hooked. And we listened to a lot of uh, NPR growing up. We didn't have a television. Um and so I was pretty disconnected from the cultural milieu. Yeah. So it was really important now, now that I'm thinking about it to have access to the outside world um, living up in North Central Washington. So, yeah, journalism felt really important. But uh, in, in college, I majored in history. And at that time, most of the 
um, opportunities for journalism were not paid. So if you had an internship, you definitely, and living in New York City, I mean, you would have probably needed a loan or some other form of financial support. Yeah, rich family. Rich family, yep. Um, so I decided uh, that I needed to do something with my life that could pay the bills. So I worked in marketing, what journalists might call the dark side. Yes. Uh, for a while, but it, it was more focused on kind of communications and trying to build, I guess, strategies for companies to be more effective. So that's a nice way of saying it wasn't, you know, focused on the consumer necessarily and generating more noise. But uh, then I decided uh, when I was 30 that I wanted to go to grad school for journalism. So I applied to CUNY, uh, a public university in New York City. They have a journalism program that interestingly was founded by the creator of Craigslist, who has since- Craig Newmark. Exactly. Used his money to give back since he stole the business model of most oh local God. newspapers. That guy, hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. in classified advertising, mm -hmm, exactly. which seems very quaint now. Yeah. Anachronistic. That was for a major daily newspaper. It was like a third of their revenue. Yeah. Just Massive. wiped out almost overnight. Mm -hmm. Right. But how did Craig Newmark make money? I didn't understand because- it was all free. Yeah. I don't know. I've there never. Must have been, yeah. How did he? How did he make? Yeah, money? I don't know, and I should know that. But that is. Uh, yeah. That is apt, I suppose. That he would. It's both apt and ironic that yeah. he would put that whatever resources he had into a journalism program. Yeah, and it it was a great program. Uh, I think it still is. It's very innovative. It's focused on really reporting more than anything else that's kind of the big what kind of reporting? push real reporting you say i would say focus on kind of urban issues things that still make kind of breaking news headlines they're not like the future righty kind of oh high quarterly stuff which i love yeah yeah, yeah we've we've done some hard news occasionally mm -hmm. it's just um you know, the resources that go into that and uh, <laughs> the yeah. riles things up, well, it's angers up the blood. For sure. And it's faster. And I think it, these days it can be real, really controversial. Um, when I was there, I spent two months in Spain at uh, El País, their old newspaper, which was created during their transition to democracy. And that was really cool. The post-Franco period. Because mm -hmm, it really gave me an appreciation for kind of the mission around journalism, which I think it's easy to lose sight of here. It is, yeah. Yeah. And they were, you know, people were fighting and dying to to get uh, truth and a balanced perspective out to the masses. So that was that yeah. was really inspiring. And it was very complicated in Spain because of the legacy of their civil war. 100%. And they're still grappling with how you those and expose those realities knowing yeah. it'll divide families in the country yeah I, I don't know if you've met Sergio Aragones but his mm. family fled Spain in the Civil okay. War yeah and uh, it was it's just a tumult mm -hmm. and then Franco died whenever it was in mid 70s mm -hmm. and nobody really knew how to form a democratic society but they seem to have more or less integrated themselves into the rest of Europe. They're, they're not such an isolated kingdom mm. like they once were under Franco. 
Yeah. So they seem to be it's figuring very, it out. It's interesting being there too, because there are you know certain um, traces of of reactions to what it would was like being under a dictatorship, for example, in some of the movements to bring more equity to language. Some might call it, you know, cancel culture or political correctness. There's, a, I felt, a lot more dialogue and debate around it because they've had, um, they've had, re- you know, suppression and repression. So having a kind of orthodoxy is sometimes, there's some pushback there that I was reading that was interesting that you don't see as much here just because uh, I think in, for some groups of people, the First Amendment is fairly intact you know, yeah. here. So it was, yeah, interesting to see that too. So, Wow. That must've really grounded your perspective. Now, how did, how did that, what was your plan at that coming out of that program? I'm living in Spain and I love that you think I had a plan. <laughs> well, you can uh, fill it in retro, you retroactively. Know, yeah. I, I, during my final semester, I was reporting uh, with a, an Italian publication at the UN, which was a lot of fun. I would go there on... Do you speak Italian? I don't. Um, no, I should. But you worked with Italians? At- I worked with a yeah, Sicilian editor, and I can speak French and Spanish. So I can sort of fill out more or less the outline, which is not yeah. enough. I'd love to speak it. But uh, we... I was writing stories for him, and one of the things that we uh, did a piece on was the um, Worldwide Week of Italian Food, which is a initiative of their consulate, sort of using food as soft power. And I met the editor of La Cucina Italiana, which is the oldest food publication in Italy, and I began writing for them. And to, was, to this day? To this day, although unfortunately they recently changed their strategy and they're not publishing uh, U.S.-based authors. Oh, really? Why would that be? Uh, there, from what I understand, Conde Nast has had a major um, cutback, and they're kind of consolidating a lot of their channels. Oh, man. Because so that was like the flagship. Yeah. I mean, I would not be able to get through a week without The New Yorker. I feel uh, like just reading that one publication at least keeps me from getting stupider. And yeah, they do... Great things. I think it's funny though, if you're managing, you probably have experience in this, like a portfolio of different publications for them, having Italian food as one vertical, from what I understand was like a redundancy because they already have Bon Appetit, which for those of us who love food, it's not redundant at all. No. The more, the better. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those like, uh, you know, in a, like a tourist town. They have one bed and breakfast, and they're not going to get any business. But they right. have like fifteen or twenty. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's I that know. saturation strategy. Yeah, someone needs to tell Anna Wintour. Is she still making the call in the shots for Condé Nast? I thought she was just just Vogue. She's the, I believe. See this? Don't well, quote I'm me. The like creative her. global director, I think something. Wow, like for the whole Condé mm-hmm. Nast. I guess she would be the. Last last person standing. Yeah. Yeah. She's important. Yeah. Yeah. There, uh, Ruth Reichel came to Ojai. Super we were talking cool. about, yeah, let's talk about the farmhouse because mm-hmm. I hope and we'll be able to have a story for the next issue and use this podcast maybe as a little teaser. Sure. But the farmhouse at the inn 
was meant to host uh, residencies of distinguished chefs and writers. And Ruth Reichel was friends with Nancy Silverton, mm-hmm. brought her here. Great event. Dishes from her book. She's had like five or six books. Mm-hmm. And this particular memoir talked a lot about Condé Nast in the end days of, was it Gourmet Magazine? Right. Yeah. They're, they're, are they, they're not around now, right? I don't believe so. Yeah. So that was like when they were folding that up Mm -hmm. and her, her editor and right-hand woman is Lori Ochoa, who is now the entertainment editor for the Los Angeles Times, Hmm. which is probably the best entertainment section in the country. Mm Mm-hmm. As you would hope from mm-hmm. being in the entertainment capital. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see Lori and Ruth and Nancy, these people who are at mm-hmm. the pinnacle of the food world. Right. Really, really interesting. Yeah. And to see kind of conceptually what they play with while they're here is exciting too. Yeah, it's quite the play box, quite the sandbox there with lots of toys. Big, big space and all best of everything. It's just really something. Yeah, it's uh, also quite savvy, right? Because food is kind of a form of entertainment now. So uh, in yeah. addition to community and agriculture, it's it's what we all want to be there for if we can get a bite. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is definitely elevated Ojai in every sense, mm. I feel. Mm, but particularly regionally for food related destination right yeah yeah that is interesting i am embarrassed i am not completely fluent in in what ohio's food history is but for sure that's a big milestone Um, yeah mm -hmm. what is our history well there's some uh interesting predecessors to alice waters and shea panisse and what she did with the Mm -hmm. farm to table movement in the 60s and 70s at the ranch house Mm mm-hmm which was meant to feed the hordes who had come for Krishnamurti talks mm. at the nearby meadow. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So they were strictly a vegetarian restaurant at first. And then I think back in the late 50s or something, they started adding a meat entree or two. Oh, interesting. But the current owners have done a really good job of keeping a hewing to that tradition. Mm-hmm. The uh, Alan Hooker was the chef owner. Mm-hmm. And he put out a few cookbooks, but he influenced a lot of the second wave of food chefs and critics and writers, um, Alice Waters included. Right. Well, there's so many fun ingredients to play with here. One thing uh, my sister and I did on the summer solstice was we uh, foraged a few green walnuts and... um, Technically, it's supposed to be by moonlight. This is a Italian, Northern Italian, French tradition, and we—I didn't even know we had walnuts here. We do, and we cracked them open, and then we stuck them in a mason jar. And I um, reached out to the you guys. Did the meats you put in a mason the mason jar with, mm-hmm. with the hard outer rind that dyes yep, your so skin. Exactly. Imagine that bright green rind smashed in half, stuffed it to the brim of a mason jar or a quart jar as you want. And then we spoke to the guys at Ventura Spirits who were kind enough to share a couple different um, alcohols with us. And we dabbled. Like a neutral spirit. Mm-hmm, exactly. 
brandy was one and corn was another wine-based brandy i think and corn yeah and we stuffed it with some herbs and then we left them to sit and it turned bright black like a this kind of greenish black hue that you would associate with like a wicked witch which was yeah. perfect and you're supposed to um open it on the day of the dead and november I, 1st mm-hmm. so i came back a couple weeks late and we tried it they were fabulous uh which Wait, is really it's exciting. It's like an aperitif or digestive. Yeah, we strain, digestive. We tr- uh, strained them and added some simple syrup. And it seemed like it'd be so bitter, though. Not at all. Fantastic. They mellowed from the. Did they ferment? Were they like fermenting? Not a fermented taste. Uh, just kind of like a warm, nutty flavor mixed with, in some cases, sage and anise. Um, the others were more of like a cinnamon orange flavor, and they were really fun. Wow, that does sound like mm-hmm. a great fun project. Yeah, so that's a maybe something that, uh, that could be of a great OI. gift for people. Hint, hint. Yeah, yeah, I have some. I'll let wow. you try it. <laughs> well, my favorite... Um, so I know a guy has a still and just for oh, you know whatever legal technicality that allows him to get away with that mm. I think non-commercial but he uses whatever he can potatoes mm-hmm. or whatever to ferment but he makes a limoncello with uh, oh, nice. pixie tangerines there you go yeah I made a batch of limoncello one time with Meyer lemons and they had a what a, a weird spell of super sunny, cold, cold weather. And whenever they were getting ready to ripen in January, February. Mm-hmm. So they were bright orange, bright orange streaks wow. on these Meyer lemons. It made the best limoncello Yum. imaginable. Wow. Yeah, because you're a great cook, so I could I don't imagine know. it would great be good. Cook. No, I like yeah. food, though. I like yeah. food. Yeah, there's so much to be explored. I also think the lettuce here is some of the best I've ever had in the country. Yeah, it's a, it, um, it does have a certain texture even to it. It's got mm-hmm. an extra little crunch or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And lettuce is a great crop for, you know, marine layer type conditions. Right. Like down in the lower bottom there. Do you know Steve Sprinkle from Farmer and a Cook? Uh, I don't. Yeah, you should get to know him. Okay. He's really... Um, always experimenting. Mm-hmm. There's a he forget, he told me there's a name for the farmers who spend all their time in their notebooks marking down all the data. Uh-huh. I can't remember it, but there's like a specific sure. subset of farmers who are deep into the mm. the data and they share it, and it's like really uh, you know kind of an organizing principle for a lot of them. But Steve's one of those guys that really. Yes. Likes to see what works and what doesn't. And here, we'll try a big batch of that. No, no, that didn't work. Oh, that was too good because now everybody wants it and the soil mm-hmm. won't turn over that fast. And, yeah. You know, it's quite a world. It's always changing. It's yeah. super dynamic. Yeah. What other Ojai-related things? Because I would have never thought of walnuts. Did you get them in Upper Ojai? We just walked, uh, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but we walked on a trail and there... There are walnut trees all over. Mm. I'd read about them too because I believe the Chumash were eating them as well. I don't know if they're native to this area. Um, uh, they might be. I shouldn't say. I don't know. I should know. We had walnut trees when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And butternuts too. Butternuts are really delicious. Yeah. Sounds like you were eating good food growing up. 
Yeah, well, I grew up on a farm, and yeah. my mom loved to cook and lo- loved to watch TV shows. So she, she did. Was always, okay. Yeah, we did. We did pretty well. Plus, we hunted and fished a lot, so we oh, always geez. had wow. wild game and lots of trout. Perch, yellow perch, are the most delicious freshwater fish. I think most wow. uh, most chefs will agree. Huh? Even better than walleye. They're related to walleye, but they're even more finely textured. Meat, so good! Oh my god! Well, I think it's time for the food memoir, maybe, which is a yeah, it's quite an interesting niche, isn't it? It's are becoming you, are one. Are you working yeah. on one? I'm not. Oh no, but I love reading other people's food memoirs and yeah, we talked about MFK mm-hmm. Fisher, Mary Frances mm-hmm. Kennedy Fisher. I forget where, somewhere on the coast of south of LA and north of San Diego, not La Jolla. Somewhere like that. Yeah. Also. But really, mm-hmm. what an interesting woman in the life that she led. And mm-hmm. just little things. I remember reading about when she was in Alsace mm-hmm. or Lorraine after mm-hmm. the Second World War, maybe before the Second World War. And she would just take the tangerines and put them on the radiator that heat the room, those old-fashioned radiators, mm-hmm. until the skin would get a little crackly. Hmm. And it totally changed the experience of eating a tangerine to have that right. crackly skin. It just, you crunch through that little papery, huh. dry skin, and boom, you just get a flavor explosion. That's a great scene. Yeah, she's kind of those the master of those potent little reflections. Yeah. yeah, little vignettes. Yeah, I was introduced to her. I read this uh, little novel that I really loved called The Dud Avocado when I was leaving my... What a great name. Junior year. Yeah. And she wrote that? I didn't know. She didn't write it, but I read the book and then I read a review in the Boston Globe and I wrote to the journalist who wrote the article and she, out of just her kind of kindness and enthusiasm, gave me four other writers to look at and MFK Fisher was one of them. And since I'd been living in Paris with a shoestring budget, eating mostly couscous, uh, Reading some of these stories from MFK were great because it's, I think sometimes when you have less options to choose from, you really savor and appreciate more what you have. I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And MFK is pretty great at kind of bringing out all those notes. Yeah. And in experience. fact, she had that book, The Wolf is at the, When the Wolf is at the Door, The Wolf. Um, the how wolf to Eat and, a Wolf. How yeah? to Eat a Wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She talks about the substitutions that you would have to make when, you know, the world was at war and supplies were really limited yeah those substitutions can really enrage people too as you see some somewhat in food media um who takes the liberties to do such a thing or should they continue to call the dish the same thing um but it's a great point um that's a high quality problem that you're even able to to your point because she's talking about when you can't get eggs right, and to get that emulsification or whatever, mm-hmm. she was able to work with tomatoes. Oh, interesting. And somebody made some dishes. Uh-huh. It's a bit of a wind up, but when uh, I first started the magazine, I helped organize this thing called WordFest mm-hmm. and did it for like two or three years. But one of the writers put together a presentation with her boyfriend of MFK Fisher writings and like cool. a little dialogue that they did back and forth. Right. 
And one of them, one of the dishes was a bread made with tomato instead of egg. Hmm. I can't, can't, I would have never known. I just couldn't believe it. It was so delicious. Huh. Did you also include Julia Childs in that? In the event? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it wasn't necessarily meant to be food events at just one of them. But yeah, Julia Child was, you know, spent a lot of time right up the road there. Yeah, uh, I was kind of dreaming how she would have approached spending the pandemic on the Central Coast. Yeah, Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, her later years and especially since so many uh, elderly people were really dealing with an extreme isolation. I wondered what she would have been like a quarantine breaker or, you know, I don't know. I think she would have just become more inventive. I think it would have brought out some of her creative energies. Speaking of which, that during the pandemic, that was a really fun thing to cover because there were a lot of interesting inventions. There was a guy in um, Philadelphia who invented a pizza pulley. There was a raffle and you could enter your name and then he would gift you a pizza. Um, he was an MBA student who was getting out of his stress and tension through baking and had lost, I think, his his grandmother um, during the oh. pandemic. And there were a lot of other, yeah, very cool, innovative ways people use food to connect. There was pizza to the polls. I don't know if you heard about that. That was on Twitter uh, pizza, it turns out, is, I think, one of the most innovative, to use that word again, um, foods out there. It's infinitely versatile. Infinitely versatile. It travels, pulls people together. You can do weird things. There was a guy in Chicago I interviewed who was using his ovens to fire up face shields, uh, which, wow. yeah. So there's a lot of weird directions yeah yeah well i love pizza because it's delicious but also because you know when i i was when i was in italy i expected the pizza everybody told me well it's not like american pizza and i was like yeah that's that's a good thing Mm -hmm. but just the fresh buffalo mozzarella Mm -hmm. and the way that the texture of that when they're pulling it and they're washing it yeah Yeah. Oh my God. It's just so incredibly delicious. Yeah. And there's squishy time, squishy kinds that kind of like sweat. Squeaky time. Squeaky. It's true. There's all different types of things. Um, One of the things, back to Julia, when I was researching for uh, an interview I did with Stanley Tucci, I came, oh, yes. We talk about that. Yeah. I came across this interesting anecdote. There was this like random interview on YouTube with he and Meryl Streep about doing um, Julia and Julia, if you recall. I did. I read that book. Flick. I saw oh, you the read movie, the book? too. Yeah, cool. the book, um, Julia Child, did not come out well in that book. Interesting. She would not cooperate with the... With this woman who was going through all those recipes in her tiny little walk up in New York and oh. tiny little kitchen. Well, I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, I was disappointed. Well, I guess I don't know if it was before that or after that, but Meryl had actually written to Julia about getting behind the organic food movement and she declined. And I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah. Um, did she give a reason or did she just I, limited time? To, I think it was probably limited thinking time. Thinking about the sand through the hourglass. Yeah, later through later in yeah. her years. But that was kind of an interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'm not anecdote. sure what to think about organic food. 
myself, I still struggle with that. If it's an option, you know, if it's between two options, I'll take that one, but I'm not going to sweat it if I can't get organic food. And I'm not even really sure exactly what are the standards. And there seem to be, there's a story in the New Yorker about um, Mm -hmm. this grain broker in Nebraska and Eastern Colorado and all that area that was just peddling. Mm-hmm. non-organic grains and just taking advantage of people's one their gullibility and two their greed and their um, lack of verification people sure just yeah you know and it would it's easy to test or no this is non not only not organic it was gmo mm-hmm. produced mm-hmm. grains that just end up all over the place and it's one of the dirty little secrets in the organic movement you don't really want to hmm. scratch too far below the surface because hmm. you kind of know what you're going to find it's like counterfeit and you know counterfeits are rife in the art world yes and fraud is yeah just as prevalent in food um sometimes in more artful ways than than yeah, others i know like they they got busted somewhere around here for selling they would take a pipe and punch out skate wings. Skates are like a bat ray. And they would use those instead of scallops. And they're saying those are scallops because those fish are easy to catch. And, you know, you got an 80 pound skate and you can probably get like, you know, 30 pounds of tender nuggets out of it. Oh, wow. A lot easier than diving for scallops for sure. Right. Huh. Yeah. So you got to watch, got to watch it. Yeah. The one thing I did with the food movements that I need to get back onto is the Monterey Aquarium Seafood mm-hmm. Watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, you should stay away from certain kinds because they're being overharvested. Sure. Or yeah. they, the the way they're caught, there's a lot of incidental bycatch and dolphins and stuff that get stuck in there. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I remember when they passed the um, Obamacare bill back in the day, there were some new mandates for fast food, right, to mention calories. And they I forget some of the other initiatives they did to yeah. make people more aware of what they were eating. And maybe it could be interesting if they had similar types of, I don't know, encouraging incentives for people when they sell fish. Um to let them know so they can make the decision. Yeah, the sourcing. Yeah, I guess it's hard to raise on appetizing topics when you're just there to, you know, have a nice time. But yeah, yeah. there are things we could probably bring more awareness to. Yeah, so um, while I got you, I was wondering what are some of your, what were some of your favorite meals like when you were growing up and now? And and um, because I can, I can remember a lot of really wonderful there's like a specificity hmm. that goes along with food. I think the memories, uh, the smell and the sensations and mm-hmm. the conviviality of a good mm-hmm. meal that's mm-hmm. really memorable. Yeah, I think a lot of the food we ate was, again, kind of a version of what I want to call it now American-Italian because Italian-American is its so many of us are like third generation, fourth generation. Uh, but we had a lot of great pasta meals. So pasta with linguine and clams was one. Mm. Um, and my mom, I mean, we were Some living inland. Chop, char, uh, parsley. Yeah. 
So we had clams oh, from a can. I mean, no, inland. So inland, I got you. Okay. Clams from a can were still good. She would also do kind of like alio, alio, just like a uh, basic. Make her mayo at home. Yeah. yeah, basic olive oil, um, parsley, and garlic. That was really delicious. Um, pasta puttanesca, which is really good with... with the capers um, and the t- tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Capers, tomatoes. She would use sun-dried tomatoes. That was an extra amount of flavor. Yeah. Um, and then recently, living in uh, Brooklyn with my sister, I was uh, dating this guy who gave me a really good idea. We were arguing... I'm embarrassed to say about who would buy what ingredients at the local corner store. And I remember, I think I was left buying the most expensive ingredient, which was yeah. like a stick of Parmigiano Reggiano or something like that. And that created this idea of, okay, well, what if we did like a bodega pasta and we put together these really tasty recipes using, for those who don't know, bodegas are like the corner store, um, kind of like, we you get your lottery. You get your A1. scratchers and you get your fifth and yeah. booze and your Miner's paper. Oaks and, has many yeah. great ones. Um, and so we, yeah, we started getting together on Tuesday nights. Um, we would invent a recipe on the spot based on what we found. We'd invite some friends over and we did kind of like five ingredient recipes using only bodega ingredients. And we would also scout out um, some Italian friends who were kind of homesick. And oftentimes they would give us a recipe or we would cook together. That sounds great. Um, you should do that here. Yeah, we did a couple during the pandemic. And obviously it was a delight because you've got such amazing ingredients. Um, and yeah, but we didn't, we haven't done it again since, but it mm. could be something to be picked up because folks don't realize, you know, you, you can make a lot of flavor with a few things if you choose wisely and, and take some fresh time. and yeah. well sourced, which is not that's not a very easy Italian, to do. It takes that's time. That's a very Italian approach to cooking. Yeah, is just a very few ingredients of the highest quality. It's so true, and they will. I don't want to totally generalize, but I've had some really funny experiences where <laughs> there's like a freak out. There's a total, like, what are you doing? There's way too much in here, and it's funny because I think a lot of Italian Who freaked out Italians if they're cooking with uh-huh. Italian Americans because Italian Americans historically, you know, came from these more food deprived areas and when they came to America supposedly oh, this abundance. abundance abundanza yeah and so they started throwing in everything into yeah. their sauce or this or that and I think to a degree it's still reflected in some of our recipes yeah. um, but it's fun and it's fun to have kind of the, both the, both extremes dynamic tension yeah absolutely because um, yeah, I remember in Florence I you know they oh you gotta try the steak Fiorentina mm-hmm and it was just a, a cut of meat, but it was uh-huh. so There's delicious. There's a reverence. And only, mm-hmm. only salt. Right. No other yeah. seasonings. Yeah, I remember reporting on a, a meringue cake, which was served uh, at Harry's Bar in Venice. And there was this... Where, what was the drink that was invented there? The Bellini. Mm-hmm. Which is like a peach uh, champagne cocktail mm-hmm. or something Prosecco. but there was another yeah. one uh i should know with like aperol or something right the spritz but a very yeah. very 
iconic um, place. Very iconic place. Hemingway hung out there and many others. Uh, but he was giving me a recipe one time and he was a cha- trained to in pastry school and had spent a lot of time on different cruise ships and we were standing in his restaurant and he was going to town on this cake and mm-hmm. I am not a baker. And it was the same ingredients again and again. It was flour, sugar, egg, but in everything. And so from the meringue to the sponge cake, an Italian sponge cake and meringue has fewer ingredients than others. And what he told me, which I thought was so genius, was you know the fourth ingredient is air. Um, yeah, it's got to froth it up. Exactly. Whipping in enough air. So, uh, yeah, that there's really a genius to that simplicity um, and restraint. And that's very hard to do. It is, especially mm-hmm. when you're surrounded by such abundance all the time here. And right. throwing a little of this and a li- more is better. Yeah. 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 Or maybe you're in the Midwest and there's not much going on. So you want to put in 12 ingredients so you can feel like you're in Chicago or wherever you yeah. want to be. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of um, what were we talking about? So, well, what are some of your favorite stories? Because uh, you've been writing a lot about Italian food. Oh, I know what I was thinking about. You sure. got to interview Rhiannon Giddens. Yes, that was really fun. Podcast. Yeah, really fun to talk to her. And this was about her cooking because her husband or partner is Italian. Yeah, he's. And so she's mm-hmm. like a big advocate for Italian cooking. Yeah, they during uh, the pandemic were kind of. I don't want to say stranded, but they were stuck in Ireland, unable to visit their families. And they told me about how food kind of became their way of getting in touch with their um, cultures, respective cultures, as being a mixture of Sicilian and Northern Italian. And she's from the South and had a lot of um, traditional Southern food in her palate. Down in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And together, uh, probably just because... Francesco, hmm, why would I say this? He just had a huge portfolio, I suppose, of recipes from his ma. And eventually she ended up kind of embracing some of the Italian dishes that he loved to make. And her kids were making ravioli and together Italian food, because it is super varied, kind of became a common point. And she also described, you know, it allowed her to kind of become aware of some of her other eating habits and um and yeah so it's it's a fun thing especially you know blending families to find like a common cuisine i think it's fun yeah yeah so that was a that was an awesome story i read that and what are some other of recent stories that you've done that really stand out recent other stories i interviewed the the director of that um pixar animation film luca Uh, I don't know if anyone saw it. It's about the sea monster who is living on the Italian Riviera and befriends um, a young girl who lives in a town. Um, And together they kind of find a way to win a race. And he ends up getting to leave his sea monster world and go to school. Um, Uh, It's like a Pinocchio story. Yeah, it's many stories. And there's a common theme, which is that they the kids talk about um, pasta a lot. And there are lots of references to cheese and... Um, mm, cacio e pepe. That's what I'm thinking mm, right now. Yeah, the best focaccia. Uh, pesto is a big one because that's kind of the 
Genoa is close by. So Luca and I were, yeah, talking about kind of his food memories and how he brought them in. He was the, I think, the creative lead on Ratatouille. So oh, he described so he knows food. He knows food. It's one of the best food movies, I think. And yeah. it's next to Big Night. Let's totally. go back to Stanley Tucci. Yeah. So he was telling me about just how difficult it is to get the texture right on, say, like a bowl of um spaghetti. How to get that right. Or in this case, it was a yeah. you know, a different kind of pasta. That was a lot of fun. I also spoke to um Steve Sharippa. Who was? Why do I know? Oh, was he the coach for the San Francisco 49ers? Uh, he was on The Sopranos. Bobby oh, Bacala. not Polly Walnuts. No, um, no, Bobby Bacala. Bobby Bacala. Oh, okay, I know who you're talking mm-hmm. about. He now. was married to Tony Soprano's sister, Janice. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so we talked about his his favorite restaurants in New York City, where they loved hanging out with James Gandolfini. Um, we talked about the restaurants where he, you know, broke up how he had to finish his meal before he could break up with a girlfriend. Yeah. Um, he was really sweet. And they, uh, as you know, just The Sopranos continues to live on. And obviously the food scenes are pretty interesting mm-hmm. and add a lot to that series. Uh, yeah. So he was fun to chat with. And then, of course, um, Stanley Tucci was definitely, that was kind of a dream to chat with him. Um, yeah, because he's, Doing a show right now, it's deep in that world, like a food tour of Italy. Yeah, his food tour, and it was his idea to start with. He was kind of frustrated with having the same representation of Italian food, and he yeah. wanted to go a lot deeper um, and explore his roots. And I thought, um, even too, like in revisiting some of his work, he's also written a couple cookbooks, and then he has, of course, the movie Big Night, which lives on, I think. Oh yeah, there's a big. He did a screening, not um, mm-hmm. shoot, not Stanley Tucci, the uh, guy who played Monk, the actor, is so great. Oh, uh, what is his name? Yeah, yeah he's I'm so lovely. bad with that. Um, he's such a great actor. I actually just saw him on the street by accident and found myself smiling at him, and I was like, "Why am I smiling?" And then I was like, "Oh, because I recognized him." And what is his name? Uh, he was. Uh, he can, he did a screening. Tony Shalhoub. Yes, Tony Shalhoub. He did a right. screening of uh, Big Night here in Ohio. It's a oh, fundraiser crazy. for a local organization called Food for Thought. Oh, awesome. All right. So that tie-in. Looking at Big Night, one of the other things I loved about what they explored there was um, the pressure on like younger immigrants who want to come to this country and do whatever food they want to do. You know, in the big night, there was in the opening scene, there's that great interaction between a husband and wife and the server. And the wife doesn't understand, I think that she's been fed, you know, given risotto. Um, and so she orders a side of spaghetti and meatballs, um, which, you know, the Italian server can't understand. Anyway, it's much funnier than I can describe, but he brought to light something that I think is really important that a lot of times we go into maybe small immigrant places and immigrant run places and we have an expectation for the food they should give us based on, you know, whatever. Cultural stereotypes. Yeah, or ethnicity we see in... Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yeah, and depending on, you know, for some of them, it's really heartbreaking not to get to express your creativity the way you want to. Yeah, well, um, I... I had the pleasure to share a stage with um, Jonathan Gold. Oh, wow. When he did a 
The City of Gold is a documentary uh-huh, about yeah, him. Yeah. He came here to screen it. We had a little awesome. discussion afterwards. And then we got to take him to Farmer and Cook and awesome. get him some uh, of uh, Olivia and Steve's cooking. Yeah, what did you feed him? Well, there was like three or four different moles, which I Whoa. love moles. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to remember the name of those little fat tortilla cakes um, that are sopas? very sopas. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's kind of like a Tex-Mex element to those for some reason. Yeah. Honey. Or, no, not the sopas, like the deep fried ones that get all puffy. Sure. They're like smaller ones, like, uh, you know, like a Spanish omelet, except not with eggs, like with corn. Okay. Sounds kind of delicious. Like a nice fat little cake. Wow. So good. Was he happy? He didn't, you know, he's not, he never writes anything negative. So if he doesn't really like it, he won't write anything. But he was not there uh, to work. He was there sure, to have fun. To enjoy. But I, I felt like it was much better than any of the other restaurants that we could have taken him to. Like, he, like sure, we could go to the inn, you know, to the Olivella or the fancy fancy dining experience yeah. there. And he probably wouldn't have as much fun as well, he does, like, with uh, street food, you know. It's funny to be on the spot. One thing that I learned... In interviewing Tucci was that um, the man that he had basically shadowed in a kitchen to play his role in Big Night was had also worked with Secundo. Yeah, had also worked with Bourdain, um, and so he and Bourdain knew each other and admired each other's work, I believe. Uh, But it's interesting to see in watching both of their series how these food people hosts of shows how they take in the food how expressive they are and i think it's a big part of why people watch them you know bredane is like sweating and super happy and i feel like tucci's a bit more analytical and i can't Mm. imagine how a food critic eats but one food critic who was my professor was uh ryan sutton he's the Mm. food critic at eater um and it's a tough, tough job. Um, yeah, Jonathan Gold would eat six to eight meals a day. That's a lot of food to think but, about. Yeah, to go back to that like immigrant experience, he had mm-hmm. a wonderful quote about people come or people in New York. It's like people come from all over the world to New York to cook for New Yorkers, mm. and people come from all over the world to Los Angeles to cook for each other. Mm, interesting. Like it's very. Yeah. It's like, it isn't just like, oh, that's a Thai restaurant. Oh, it's Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai. It's got the Malaysian influence, mm. South. It's mm-hmm. like all the various yeah. regional cuisines and the communities that form around these mm-hmm. little restaurants. He made a very compelling case that Los Angeles is the capital of food culture in the world. I think that's a, a beautiful thing, or at least a beautiful working definition, no? I think another thing I noticed when I came out here was that... Um, Another Italian chef and his partner, they started uh, regarding her food, which is a kind of a female. Regarding her food. Yeah, it's a female-led festival. And I think it was the first of its kind. So female restaurateurs or chefs could uh, register themselves and then kind of like a restaurant week, um, bring awareness to what they were doing and also... Mm. uh, For me, it was like eye-opening because I was trying to think of the same number of chefs like that in New York City. And, it, and I think in some cities it's 
the gender divide is a bit different depending on what's yeah. going on. Yeah. In Chicago, there's a lot of female chefs, aren't there? So mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. chef's table or something, they were talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, it's And a- in New York, it's a very masculine-dominated world. And it's a tough world. <clears throat> there's lots of uh, strange regulations, as we all know. Um, front of house, back of house, tipping. It's a... Oh, God, can we t- get rid of tipping, please? It's a it's a topic, you know. I think, but one thing I can say that I really appreciate about that, going back to journalism, I think American food journalism is really impressive. I feel like there's a really healthy level of criticism, and people are mm. really trying to push the limits of how they think about, you know, the three meals a day. Hopefully, that they can enjoy and how that kind of impacts their quality of life, but also the planet. Yeah. Um, and a number of other things. And you don't it's see very that everywhere. intersectional. Exactly. Yeah. Like food itself. Yeah. Well, I was talking about tipping. As I had oh, uh, uh-huh. the Topa Talk crew on here, and they talk a lot about oh. restaurants, you know, working in restaurants. Yeah, in what were they that. saying? Well, I think that there's uh, the paradox is that mm-hmm. people who hate tipping the most are generally the best tippers. Because the people who, huh. they, they feel guilty like I shouldn't be doing this. It's very condescending. It's oh. class based. Uh huh. It's got all these icky components to it. It's a relic of like Pullman porters right, in the eighteen sixties right. and eighteen seventies. It yeah. goes back to you know slave power. Mm. It's just really awful that mm. we still have this out of date, anachronistic institution mm-hmm. of tipping, and yet mm-hmm. the, the system. You know the people who are serving and. They don't have a have a choice in that. It's just what it right. is. So you feel obligated. I'm just like twenty percent. Just tip twenty percent. People don't worry about. Oh well, do I tax on the tip on the tax and all the rest of that? Just add up the bill and just times point two. That's all you have to do. That's really interesting. I didn't know. Yeah, coming from because I hear people talking family, about you know. Well, you got to subtract the tax and Whoa. the bill, and then you. Wow. Like, come on, wow. really? Don't you understand how hard these people work and what a grim job it is? And, you know, they, their point was everybody should do two years in the restaurant, in the service business, service industry. I think it could be a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it could be a glue and a reckoning and a raising awareness of what it's like to be hustling for a living like that. Yeah, and it's also one of those, I think, professions that has been, I mean, in a beautiful way, it's it's a very kind of classy job in the sense that it hasn't changed that much since maybe a, the 19th century. There's a beautiful century. formality to it. Yeah. When, yeah, when done in some kinds of ways. At the same time, I'm sure none of those people ever imagined they would be, you know, kind of gatekeepers and enforcing public health rules and that's just too it's much really different Put those poor people on yeah. the front lines when it's hard enough Very as different. it is yeah i remember one of the first things they did uh you know getting rid of cash which at the time i was thinking well some people don't have credit so what is the thinking here and i remember yeah. hearing that one pizzeria was washing its cash at night literally putting the cash in soap and water and then hanging it out to dry. I shouldn't laugh. That shows the level of peer, fear and well, paranoia. Well, we didn't know. But we like didn't have, we washing had, your sketchy, money. Huh? Sketchy information. And right. they talked about transmission on surfaces. Mm-hmm. And 
fomite. That's a regular thing in medical world. You do pick up a lot of contamination from surfaces. Right. So it made sense. But that excess of caution, really, I'm glad that we're past that part at least. Although I don't have great optimism that we're putting this pandemic behind us. No, nor do I. I am very grateful, though, that we've seen things like uh, new piazzas, plazas, whatever you want to call them, common space uh, for people to gather. Oh, it's, um, and especially in Ojai, the a la carte dining is just really amazing. Like, yeah. we're talking about Bonnie Lou's, their courtyard seating. Mm-hmm. When you're just walking through the back of the arcade, it feels like some small town in Europe. Totally. Or even downtown Ventura. I mean, downtown it's Ventura. Crazy to think I hope it they don't go a... back to, um, <sighs> you know, the, the, Having that pedestrian square, yeah, mm-hmm. it's so it's so great. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, restaurants, for making for pushing for that because that has made a difference. It makes a big difference in mm-hmm. the whole vibe of downtown mm-hmm. Ventura. So, yeah, you've been we've been yakking away for over an hour. Let's oh, see wow. if we can figure out how to wrap this up. Okay. How about uh, celebrity chefs? You know, we we're talking about uh, you know the. I'm not even sure when that started. I guess, what was the first uh, French cookbook came out in like the very early mm-hmm. 1800s? Um, I, yeah, I might even say I can't 1700s, even, Not Le Scoffier. That was like much, much later. There were a lot, and there were some guides. Sabarin. Sabarin. Yeah, he was one of them. Brilliat. Briat. Mm-hmm. How do you pronounce Brilliat, that? Briat Savarin. Yeah. yeah. And before that, there were... There were celebrity chefs, you know, working for Louis the Sixteenth and and things. Yeah. They had published pamphlets and crazy diagrams of insane foods. Yeah, some um, of the complexities of like their tornadoes and the what was that? Uh, I mean, there's just some this crazy. There were lots of yeah extravagant, extravagant things. Yeah. I think what intrigues me about interviewing chefs is that there's a I met a. A few, some have art history backgrounds. They're very Mm -hmm. visually driven people. Then others have like an obsessive ability to be master logicians, technicians um, who, you know, can like look at a, add 16 ingredients to a particular dish and like a writer, maybe, maybe they've been thinking about that dish for 16 years and it's kind of finally mm. come to fruition. And then you have this kind of drill master necessity of, because this is not a, in many cases, a highly profitable business, they have to figure out how to make a profit on that art. Ruthless efficiencies. Yeah. So all of that combined together can obviously create hell-like conditions or it can be a real thing of, of beauty and originality and like those chefs have to count down to the penny every day in what they do. It's crazy. Not to mention seasonal factors. You know, if the fish arrives on time, uh, the dish goes out hot. I mean, talk about the list of details and variables there. That's an insane amount of things to try to manage with a smile, you know? Yeah. Um, which I think is it's also a wonder why... more fingers don't get chopped off in the prep line. Sure. Uh, and I also think it's why, like, I haven't seen any chopped off fingers, by the way, but um, thankfully, Not like Jose Andres, you know, I know that there's world kitchen. It's hard to be a public official or a leader of any yeah. kind, but 
he proved, you know, chefs can really adapt to very dire situations and and make people's lives better. Um, yeah. Now the first popped up on my radar was Hurricane Maria, mm-hmm. I think, because he fed millions of millions yeah. of meals. Which is such a gift, right? And an undervalued, yeah. underappreciated thing. You think about the meals you feed yourselves and then you think about this capacity to to fill to feed thousands of people and do it well. Yeah. Um pretty awesome gift. Yeah. There's a lot of um chefs came out of the military. Right. Because mm-hmm. you're tasked with feeding ten thousand people a day on yeah. a military base. Right. So they learn that scale mm-hmm. and then they can winnow down to the deliciousness. Yeah, I think I uh, tell me you probably know better. I think Napoleon, some of his success was having canned food. Uh, yeah, well, that came towards the, that was like 1815 that they patented that process mm-hmm. for canning food. Okay. But that was his drive yeah. to get that to his troops because they right. march on their stomachs, as he famously said. Right. The essentials, the bare yeah. essentials. They know and what And then some about. of the great French meals, like chicken marengo, was mm-hmm. based on whatever they could scrounge up after a, a hard-fought campaign after the Battle of Marengo in mm. spring of 18-nothing, 18, 1800. Yeah, so what is that chicken marengo? is like an egg and a chicken. and a, It's like, I don't remember now. I can't remember. But I just found it fascinating that one of these illustrious dishes was mm-hmm. born mm-hmm. out of just some chef scrounging up something for his general. right. I'm sure we'll have something like that here if we After don't already. Pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Any yeah. pandemic uh, foods that you really craving? I can tell you that Ojai roti bread, Claude mm, Man's mm-hmm. bread. That's why I'm carrying this mm-hmm, extra tire mm-hmm. around. Uh, any new food I'm craving? Or just Ojai food hmm. that you really... Uh, That's a re- Well, as I mentioned, I'm... A sucker for the raw ingredients, the crisp, uh, the crisp, what are they called? Persimmons. I Uh, find really delightful. Picking any orange, even if it's still green to me, is so satisfying because I did not grow up in a climate like this. So I love it. Uh, The radicchio here, which is really difficult to grow, um, is amazing. Uh, I'm more of kind of a raw ingredients like to talk to the producers about what they do for restaurants though um there are probably too many to yeah to i single don't want one anybody out. to feel left out but yeah we're spoiled for choice in ojai and a lot of people who live here don't really understand that the only reason that we have so much choice is because of tourism if hmm. this place were not a tourist town We'd still have caros, so maybe that would be one upside. But that's yeah. all we would have would be caros. It's funny, right, too, because you'll go to some places and everyone's bummed because the tourists made the food become more homogenous. But here, apparently, it's, it's because a our quality. visitors are a little more upscale. <laughs> yeah, it isn't just flannel cakes and 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 we've got a lot of new restaurants coming on board too. That's I'm true. Excited, Huge yeah. wave. Yeah, I feel like Instagram keeps the buzz alive and. There's a lot of anticipation, which is great. Yeah. yeah. So anything else we need to talk about? I'm trying to think. Um, I think everyone should stay curious. Don't take any ingredients for granted, you know? Uh, yeah. 
it's important that's to... That's a good recipe for life. Yeah, really don't, because... And I'm guilty of definite food waste, but, like, living in Ojai, you can have a tomato plant that can be in season for almost two years. Like, that's amazing. That is pretty Take cool. advantage of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Abigail. Thank you. All right. We'll see you around the campus. Okay. Just thinking out loud. Because I love food and food culture so much, there was a lot I didn't get to talk about with Abigail, including how she found her way to Ojai, as well as her plans to write about Nancy Silverton and the Ojai Valley Inn's amazing farmhouse, which puts Ojai at the very center of California's regional cuisine. But with a shred of luck and good timing, we'll have her back on and go deeper into the never-ending conversation about food and what it says about our humanity. Well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you. 